When I was 14, I was recruited by a friend of the family to go sailing for a month. Ramblin' Jack Radcliffe was known to my family. He would perform at the folk coffee house that my mother ran, and had even been a uh, and, and had even been a student of my father, who was a science teacher in the next town over. And Jack called because he needed one more hand to sail a 40-foot catch down to New York City and back. And for some reason, my parents said yes. And so during the last weeks of June in 1980, I would head down to the shipyard in Fairhaven and learn about sailing. And for two weeks, all of the knowledge about sailing that I really learned was about putting linseed oil on wood, coiling rope, putting the sails up and down, and tying knots tying lots and lots of knots. Eventually, we were ready, and Jack told me to go and buy some rain gear. And he said, get one of those rain hats like the guy on the frozen fish wears. The next day, I showed up, and he inspected my purchases, the hat, the bright yellow rain pants, and a raincoat, which he took from me and then with his knife, cut the hood off. I said, why did you do that? It's a brand new raincoat. He said, I will tell you after the first storm. A few days later, off we went. Sailing out of New Bedford Harbor, like generations of men in my family had, they, of course, left to hunt whales. And we left to hunt for pleasure. We went off to Newport that first day, and it was a cold and gray day, and soon a fog rolled in. And Jack, knowing that I was the youngest of the four people on the boat, and probably had the best hearing, sent me to the very front of the boat, up to the bow to listen and to look for buoys. He had shown me before how we were using maps. We weren't using any sort of radar. We were using maps to get from Fairhaven out to, uh, to Newport and then further south. But in that fog, it was hard to see and find those buoys. And there I was, the front of the bow, looking for a buoy, listening for a sound. Each buoy, you know, has its own number. And they often have their own sound that you can figure out, so that you can figure out where you are, even if you can't see anything. And after a few hours of crawling through the fog like that, we made it safely into port that night. The next morning, we woke up, had breakfast, and set off for Block Island. It's about 27 miles in a straight line from Newport to Block Island, but of course, in a sailboat, in a sailboat you don't sail in a straight line. You've got to tack back and forth to keep the wind in your sails, which is fine. You don't sail to be in a rush. 
it was a beautiful day. It was chilly, it was a beautiful day. I do remember at one point, while we were sailing one way, all wrapped up in our sweaters, this beautiful yacht went by in the other way, in the other direction, and they waved at us, and they were there all in swimsuits and looking tan and handsome, and we were freezing, and I said to Jack, I said, how is this possible that we're freezing and they're in their swimsuits? And he said, that's the difference between sailing and yachting. <laughs> It was a beautiful day. The sun was shining, and I still remember that we saw the, um, the U.S. Coast Guard's tall ship, the Eagle, off in the distance, and its sails shone like gold in the sun, sailing away from us. And then, in stories like this, there's always a, an and then. And then the sky started to get dark. And soon it was difficult to tell the difference between where the sea ended and the sky began. And Jack told us all to get our rain gear on and our life vests on. We sailed right into a squall and our little boat was tossed and so was my lunch. And Jack swore and he yelled and he swore some more and eventually I understood that he wanted me and one of the other crewmates to head forward to take down the sail and tie up the ropes and then to hang on. It was some very rough going for a while. But eventually we made it to Block Island, which was beautiful. It wasn't really a beautiful part of Block Island that we pulled up to, but after all that storm, being able to go and to lay anchor and to be there in the calm water, oh, that was beautiful. And I realize now that being in that place of peace, that that, that was that was something that we were looking for. That was, that was hope. That was the hope that we were looking for. That was the place that we wanted to be in a peaceful harbor. I didn't have a language back then to, to say it. I was 14. I barely had any language. But I, wonder, I understood how wonderful it was to arrive safe and sound in that peaceful harbor. What did Emily Dickinson say about hope? Hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. The sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chilliest land, and on the strangest sea, yet never an extremity, it asked a crumb of me. You know, after that night when we anchored and had our dinner and we were getting ready for bed, I asked Jack, if he would finally tell me why he cut the hood off of my new raincoat. He said, oh, I did that in case you fell overboard. A hood just fills with water and pulls you down, and I don't want you to die on my watch. I guess that's a hopeful thing, too. Now, I tell you this story that's oh, well over 40 years because it illustrates, at least in part, where we kind of find ourselves right now. 583 days since we first went into lockdown. We had no idea the impact that this pandemic would be on the world, 
on our nation, on our children, and on our elders, on our churches, on our relationships, on ourselves as individuals. We have searched for a path through the fog, and we've had some storms, but instead of finding a peaceful harbor, we just found ourselves in a different fog bank. Once again, trying to figure out how to get through it, difficultly. Remember, remember at the start of this whole thing, when we had to figure out how to get toilet paper? It seems quaint now, doesn't it? Now we have a shortage of new cars. Now we have a mental health crisis. Now we have seen the impact of climate change because we aren't distracted by, by our daily commutes or other things. I have to be honest that there were times during this unfortunate season when I was sure that it was going to usher in something transformative for all of us. Like during the protests after the murder of George Floyd, I thought, wow, this pandemic is going to initiate a cultural revolution. Out will go all the systems of oppression, and in will come new systems of accountability, and that's going to be amazing. And then in the days after January 6th, I wondered how long it would take for our streets to fill with reactionaries. And I wondered if Canada would take my wife and children in. When I think back to those early days of the pandemic, I was worried, worried for those people right around me, my wife and kids, my parents, my sister and her children. And as things developed, we started to try and find a way to get through all this. We found ourselves lost in a fog bank, listening to the sounds of buoys, watching for signs that would hopefully get us to that new harbor, or back to the old harbor. Now we know much more than we did all that time ago, and yet we still haven't really reached that place where things seem normal. And to be honest, none of us are really sure what normal is anymore. We are living in a time of great mystery. We know that we can't go back to what was. Too much has already happened. But we're also not really sure what it is that we want. Not only are we unsure of what's going to happen in this new world, now we are living at a time when we wonder about the great mystery of life that awaits us at the end of our own lives. I'm sure that for many of us, the thoughts of death were, have always been sort of far off. Just think, death, I know, is not something that happens here in Wellesley. It occurs in Florida or retirement communities on the North Shore. But we have been reminded because of this pandemic, and what it's done to all of us, that we are finite beings. And perhaps even more frightening, we have discovered that we are not in control of what is going on. We are not sovereign. We are limited. We are mortal. We do not have control over this situation. And as much as it bugs us to be reminded of that fact, as much as we may be paralyzed by the idea of that, we are not in control. Something that many of us have just taken for granted for so long. We want to be in control, 
So we sit outside our favorite restaurants under heat lamps because it seems kind of normal. We wear masks and go shopping, not because, um, not because we need things, really, but because shopping is the idol of our times. It tells us what we should do. It makes us feel normal. But as we have learned, no amount of toilet paper is going to keep us safe. We are still, after all these days, acting out of fear. We are acting out of the fact that we are not in control. We're starting to see the broken system of our nation. All the broken systems, the healthcare system, the political system, the economic system. We see the bad decisions made. We see opportunities missed. We see people plunged into chaos. People are panicking because the idols that they once worshipped, whether it's shopping or belief that they will uh, 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 prosper because of the color of their skins, those things we are discovering are not true. Things that most of us already knew, but others had never truly identified them, acknowledged them. The people and the things where we have placed our trust are failing us. In this time of mystery, it is a time of mystery because we don't really know what's coming next. But let me tell you something else about human beings in times of mystery. When these times arrive, people get to create and express themselves. People get to find new ways to show that they are alive. We're creative people, not just us, but all humans are creative. Just think of the, of the medical professionals or the people, um, the scientists who have worked so hard to create a vaccine. Think of the beautiful uh, the, the folks in Italy who would sing to each other from their balconies. Think of all the little ways the people in your neighborhood reached out to each other. We had a, a, a little neighbor who was five years old and she made a weekly newsletter telling folks what was going on. It was mostly about uh, cats. <laughs> Think of all the things that we have done to make life possible. Think of the things we have learned during this time, the technological skills that we have all, well maybe, I'm, I'm guessing that all of us have learned new technological skills, but perhaps you are here because you didn't learn those skills. But so I say to the people uh, watching us on Facebook, congratulations, you've, you've won a skill. Maybe some of you spent the time and you learned a language or you learned needlepoint. You learned how to play the ukulele. Maybe some of you even got into shape. That was not, that did not happen to me. Let me just say that, it did not happen to me. But when life slowed down, we were reminded of the things that were truly important to each other, the things that make life worth living. Why have you, why have we done this? Why have we done these things? Why have we continued to be creative? Because we all have hope that there will be something worthwhile to come out on the other side of all this. What did Vaclav Havel write? Hope is the feeling that life and work have meaning 
and you can have it regardless of the state of the world that surrounds you. Hope is a state of mind, not of the world. We were reminded of the importance of hope when Amanda Gordon, Gorman, the uh, poet laureate, spoke at President Biden's inauguration. We will rebuild, reconcile, and recover. And every known nook of our nation and every corner called our country, our people diverse and beautiful will emerge battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. Hope is that thing that keeps life worth living. Hope is that thing that regardless of what is going on, we have in our hearts that allows us to wake up the next morning and sort of say, hopefully this will be better. This should be better. Something else happens during the, this mysterious time. In a time when everything else seems in flux, it is the thing that is constant. Thing that is constant in our lives, it is a thing that can inspire us. Only the earth endures. Under pavements trembling like a pulse, under buildings trembling like a cry, under the waste of time, under the hoof of the beast, above the broken bones of a city, there will be something growing like a flower, something bursting from the earth, again, forever, deathless, faithful coming into life again like April. There are banks of, of fog ahead of us. There might even be a few more storms. But ahead of us also are flowers and life and hope brought home again, which envelops us and moves us as a people and as individuals forward to find the things that are truly meaningful the things that the world needs from us, that we need from the world. Amen. And now our final hymn. 